Welcome back to the Harvard Center for International Development's weekly podcast. This week, we are joined by Nancy Birdsall, President Emeritus and a Senior Fellow at the Center for Global Development. She will be discussing her recent writing on privilege, power, and the responsibility that citizens in rich countries, such as the United States, have in relation to developing countries, in what she calls a more interdependent and shrinking world. Birdsall's forthcoming book approaches these themes in the form of a memoir, drawing from her own personal experiences to shed light on global issues. Nancy Birdsall spoke with CID Research Fellow Anna Grisanti after an appearance at the CID Speaker Series at the Harvard Kennedy School on September 20, 2019. For our listeners that are not familiar, could you just begin by giving a general summary of what your book is about? Uh, maybe I could just go through the four major chapters um, that I expect to focus on. The first is called uh, Privilege and Luck. And here I'm using my uh, early years in post-war America, born at a lucky time, right after the war ended, the World War II ended, Mm -hmm. that's how old I am more or less, in a country where it was lucky also to be born. America, which was prospering, richest country in the world, uh, dominant in every way. So it's a little bit, um, that first chapter is about the privileges, implicit and explicit, in being born in the right place, and also for me at the right time, for various reasons. A time of prosperity, a time when by the time I reached working age, the demand for skilled people was rising. In fact, the unemployment rate was lower than it had been until this year, 2019, when I entered the workforce. And it was also, for a woman, a good time to be born because when I entered the workforce is when uh, it became much easier to uh, avoid unplanned pregnancy. So that's about my privilege. And the chapter will also be about the privileges that the U.S. acquired because it was so dominant uh, in that era, which is approximately 1946 to the end of the 1960s. Uh, You speak a lot about feminist economics and its importance in development work. How do you define feminist economics, and could you speak more as to why you believe that a movement in search for agency for women is central in development work? Um, What kind of experiences in your own life uh, have brought you to this conclusion? And how do you incorporate this into when you work with governments in policy design and in your research? So feminist economics, you know, I've always been aware of it, but I've had the benefit uh, while I've been here to have much more time to read and think about feminist economics and how it relates to my life Mm -hmm. and how it relates to the changing world. And the way I think of it is that it's an approach to economics which says it's a little bit the opposite of what we think of as homo economicus, the mm-hmm. utility-maximizing man standing for everybody. Feminist economics puts a lot of focus on the social nature of human beings, mm-hmm. the interest of many human beings in fairness, uh, the tendency to altruism under certain circumstances that we're not all selfish, And it puts a lot of emphasis on context, that the way people behave is often a function of the context in which they live. So it has all these implications for how you think about women's behavior in a world where there's discrimination, 
Um, and a lot of the issues that WAP fellows and WAP um, faculty here focus on around negotiating and so on for jobs and positions. So that's my crude summary of feminist economics. Um, why it's important, I do believe that we know now in a way that certainly wasn't the case 20 and 30 years ago when I was trained and more when I was trained as an economist because of behavioral economics and because of behavioral theory we understand much more that people do not always act rationally. I mean the Nobel Prize winner book is all about that reality that people make decisions on the basis of many other things besides maximizing their money or being greedy or whatever. Mm -hmm. So that's important in the world. There's self-interest in understanding the issues in the developing world and how they bear on everybody. But there's also a kind of moral imperative. And um, in an interesting way, it coincides with some of the thinking in feminist economics, but also some of the more recent thinking. And the fact is that more and more you see this, I see this with students including here at the Kennedy School, more and more of them, not only those who come from developing countries, want to go work in public health or in do economics as it deals with developing countries, work for NGOs and so on. So I do think that's a good direction in the world, a measure of progress uh, in itself. Well, you asked about how I incorporate sort of these ideas from my own life about being a woman and acquiring agency and acquiring power Mm -hmm. (laughs) in a way because of early privilege. What does that have to do with my own work? Well, early on, I did sort of, I started even before I went and became an economist uh, as a kind of analyst in an organization dealing with population issues in the developing world. So I was very much trained in the old style economics. Gary Becker, I didn't say that in the lecture, but some people will know that Gary Becker is another Nobel Prize winner who said, you know, the economics of the family is all about choices that families make in, in their interest. And it was actually used, in fact, as feminist economists pointed out, was mostly about choices the man makes in mm. the family. But putting that aside, so I didn't really do, except in my early days before I became formally trained as an economist, I didn't do that much work on sort of the problem of gender and gendered economics and inequality associated with being a woman versus a man. Um, A little bit, enough because I was doing economics of the family and labor economics, but not, not so much, nothing like now there's really you know, huge fields around women's economic empowerment and where it comes from. What I've learned about it is from my own life, as you suggested, which is I do believe because of the women's liberation movement that really got traction in the U.S. in the 70s, now a long time ago, influenced me. Hmm. And I have a little bit of a story that, you know, I got married in one generation and then came women's liberation movement, and I wanted to change the contract with my first husband to liberate me in a way Mm. that I didn't have to be the only one getting home on time from work Mm -hmm. for the babysitter, Mm -hmm. simple example. So uh, then I subsequently married 
again, and it was like a second-generation husband. Hmm. So a social movement awakened me to the reality that choices can be made as a woman. It gave me agency. So that's an issue I'm exploring now for women in developing countries. Interesting. How's that working? How important is our so, social movements compared to the traditional things like are women educated? You know, are women working in the formal sector, labor force? Do women have legal rights to land? A lot of the issues that arise in the discussion about women's economic empowerment. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Agency is important. Choices, having the ability to make choices is important. Of course, definitely. Can you elaborate on the themes you have researched about the death and costs of inequality in today's world? What are the costs you consider most important and how prominent is the problem? Yes, so I learned by working on developing country issues about inequality, particularly Latin America in contrast to East Asia. Hmm. So it's, it's actually very interesting in that I worked on Latin America at the World Bank, um, particularly on health and education. And then later, when I was the head of the policy research group, uh, we did a major study on the, trying to explain the success of the East Asian tigers, which is Hong Kong, Taiwan, Singapore, and Korea. And when I finished that work, One of the things that was very striking to me, having worked on Latin America, is these East Asian countries, for various reasons right after World War II, started with a base of relatively equal distribution of assets, of land, of education, very quickly. And that that had profound implications. Um, the way the growth cycle happened mm -hmm. and I believe is key to understanding there are other keys to understanding the success of those economies that are also important that have to do with export oriented and currencies not being de uh, overly devalued and so on but most of those policies you can think of as endogenous or a function of something else And a lot of it may have had to do in East Asia with right communist China in the background, and they're wanting to ensure that to co-opt the peasants and workers to loyalty to the new governments post-war. Okay, so in Latin America, there's a long and very troubled history of terrible inequality that's embedded in the nature of the Latin end the endowment in Latin America, the physical endowment, the minerals and. So I think of the depth and cost of inequality very much as a development economist, that these issues of inequality, why do they affect growth? And they affect growth because when there's a lot of inequality, as we know as economists, it discourages investment for people that don't already have collateral, et cetera, et cetera, you know, complicated theories, but basically that sort of thing. But it's also because it, it makes it harder to develop the institutions that make a political system work. The injustices associated with inequality mm -hmm. make democracy a struggle. 
And they also are associated with social conflict, which in turn makes politics hard. So to the extent as an economist, development economists are increasingly recognizing the importance of institutions and you know social cohesion to the growth process, even in a simple way, the costs of inequality are very high. Inequality matters. It matters for growth, for politics, for social life, everything. Now, you asked about sovereign nations. You know, the great challenges today and for this century are going to be how to manage collective action uh, initiatives or collective action itself among sovereign governments because it's a shrinking world, but we don't have the equivalent at the global level to what the state does at the country level, mm. which is to manage the economy, be a forum for collective decision-making about taxes, expenditures, health, education, energy policy, etc. We don't have that. We do have a set of global institutions that sort of are as close as we come to global governance. Mm -hmm. Uh, political and economic global institutions that have a kind of power that's different from sovereign power, weaker. Most of them are actually limited or energized, depending, by sovereigns, mm -hmm. and mostly by the powerful big sovereigns, which mm -hmm. takes us back to the role of the U.S. in the world. Mm -hmm. That leads well into my next question uh, about what role should international organizations play in this global governance issue? And you speak of we don't have the equivalent of the state at a global level. So do you think that this should be something that is there? Um, and if you could elaborate more on that. Right. So um, it's a great question. I've thought a lot about the role of international institutions because of my almost 20 years working in the multilateral, two different multilateral banks. And, you know, they cannot replace, they cannot constitute a global government. But there's no question that for the global economy, these major institutions, especially the IMF and the World Bank and the regional development banks, mm -hmm. are important. They can play some role in upping the ante on being sort of progressive in one's approach. They play a, a small, but it can be, you know, a critical role in sharing resources across countries. They're the equivalent to NATO and to other security organizations for issues of economic development, for sure. And I'd say the UN and all of its agencies have some of that role, but importantly for me, the UN stands for, from its very beginning, a kind of approach that says we do have a moral imperative to mm -hmm. think globally. And so the, I think the UN has had more effect. Let me invoke uh, Hillary Clinton speaking at the UN first UN conference on women 
and development or women in Beijing, you know, that's important. It spreads the word. Right. So the UN sets a high standard um, on social issues in particular. Okay. So that's the role. Now, I do think they can play a role um, to the extent that the powerful members, including the U.S., want them to. And there's a lot more role in a good sense they could play on collective action problems like climate than they are playing now. That's especially the World Bank, which is the global economic institution. Right. It could, I think, do a lot more on dealing with um, global public goods and bads. So this, this was uh, my next question about uh, global public goods. Um, why is it important to think of public goods in a global context? And how can these global organizations focus on providing them? Um, what are the challenges that they might face? Okay, so I think, you know, to maybe oversimplify a little and following on what, what I was just saying, mm -hmm. my, my sense is that the World Bank could do a lot more, could even shift over the medium term resources, shared resources in a way that now go for lending to developing countries, to shared resources to deal with collective bads and goods. That's a long story and a complicated one politically for many reasons. And it does have to do with power, you know, privilege, and some of the themes of the book as a whole. Mm -hmm. how, how to make that sort of thing happen. At the same time, what's interesting is I think the regional development banks that I've thought about a lot, uh, the African Development Bank, the um, Asian Development Bank, the new bank, the Chinese, took leadership in starting the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. They have a key role within their regions of representing their region and the countries in their region in the bigger global game. When I was at the Inter-American Development Bank, one of the most important things the IDB was doing then, through its leadership, was uh, providing a counter voice to the traditional IMF approach, for example, on banking crises in Latin America. Mm -hmm. Today we have a crisis in Argentina. Mm -hmm. I'm sure the Inter-American Development Bank is interacting with and trying to influence and, you know, sort of representing Argentina, sort of representing the region in the context of IMF decision making. So I use that as an example to say these international institutions in an interesting way can play a role on regional public goods mm -hmm. as well as global public goods. I guess I, I can take it also into what impact do you hope that this book will have? Oh, what I hope is that the book will be uh, an opening for many more particularly young Americans, particularly women, to see the way the world is changing and why it matters for them. My crude theory of change is that just more people knowing more mm. about the way the global economy works, the way the development industry works, in a country like the U.S. is likely to lead to more 
grip on things like, you know, climate is not just a problem for us, it's a problem for them. And their problems about developing and sustaining democracy are now a problem for us. Mm -hmm. That them is us, that's kind of the bottom line, and us is them. With convergence, with growth and change in the developing world, all for the good, the growth, but it brings problems too that are getting to be similar to and mirroring problems here. So the theory of change is just get more people to understand these issues. Not just the way global politics works and foreign policy sort of approach, but the way the global economy works. And that will generate, with more understanding, better citizenship. As in this country, people can be patriotic American citizens and global citizens at the same time. You can find more information about Nancy's work at the Center for Global Development at cgdev.org. Nancy welcomes questions directly at nbirdsall at cgdev.org, and you can follow her on Twitter at Nancy M. Birdsall. To learn more about CID's research, events, and upcoming speaker series lectures, visit us at cid.harvard.edu. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you back next week.